The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He's a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. It'd probably be helpful if you have your Bibles open because although we only read the second half of Acts chapter 10 because it's quite a long chapter, uh, I'm going to be referring to the whole chapter just to keep you on your toes because uh, it's important I keep you awake in this hot weather. Now, imagine this afternoon when you get home, you get a phone call. You answer and you say, hello. Hello, it's Jim here from 10 Downing Street. Um, I'm the head of the PR department for Boris Johnson. And I was wondering whether you'd be uh, agreeable to being involved in a little campaign that we're running at the moment. It's come to our attention that Boris's popularity may have slumped ever so slightly this week. So we would love you to be involved in just bringing that popularity back up a little bit. What we'd like you to do is convince people that Boris is the best person to currently be leading the country. We'd like you to convince everybody that Boris takes it very seriously, that he will keep all of the rules which he has enforced. 
he will also have the full support of his whole party. If you could let everybody know, that would be brilliant. Oh, one more thing. He is talking about tax raises next week. So if you could just work that into your conversations as well and get his popularity back up, that would be wonderful. Thanks ever so much. Bye. Now, I think probably our first thought would be, that's got to be a prank, hasn't it? But just suppose that was real and it really happened. Now, if I was answering the phone, I mean, my first thought would be, not only I can't do that, but I don't want to do that. But if you did have to do that, I'd be thinking, that's impossible. If I try and convince people I know that Boris is really good at the moment, they're going to think I'm completely nuts. The best PR executive in the world would struggle at the moment to raise uh, Boris's reputation. There's no way that I'm going to be able to do that. Now, I know that's a bit of a silly illustration and it's very unlikely to happen, but how many of us feel the same way about evangelism, about telling people about Jesus? We look at the world and we often conclude, I don't know where to start. No one seems to want to hear what I have to tell them. And I don't feel very good about telling other people. I'm not very good at sharing that news. People always ask really hard questions and I'm never sure what the right answer is. I'm not confident. I just think telling people about Jesus is best left to the people who are really good at it, not people like me. Now, here's the mistake we make when we think like that. We think that the key ingredient in evangelism is us. It's our skill and our understanding. But the thing is, the power in evangelism doesn't come from the messenger, it comes from the message. In today's passage, Peter preaches a very significant sermon. And we might think he must have preached something really incredible, something very clever and persuasive to lead so many people to trust in Jesus. But here's the thing, he doesn't. Peter's sermon is very simple. He tells his audience about the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, and then he tells them that if you trust in Jesus, your sins can be forgiven. That's because the power of salvation doesn't come from us how well we explain our faith. The power to save comes from Jesus, who he is and what he has done. It comes from the gospel because the gospel is true. Now the word apologetics means the defending of the gospel. It is a biblical and good practice. But the word defending can be a little bit unhelpful. It can lead us to think that the gospel needs our defending. That it only has a chance of connecting people when accompanied by clever arguments and persuasive things. The preacher, Charles Spurgeon, famously compares the gospel to a lion. He asks his listeners to imagine a group of men who have taken it upon themselves to protect a caged lion. He gives the men this advice. Well... I should suggest to them that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him. He would take care of himself. The best defence for the gospel is to let the gospel out. In Acts chapter 10, Peter doesn't come with some special new method of evangelism. He pretty much just opens the cage 
and lets the gospel out. If, like me, you feel completely inadequate at defending the gospel, then take heart, because the gospel can defend itself. Our role is to let it out. This morning, I'd love to draw our attention to three things that I think this passage has to teach us about evangelism. Firstly, it tells us that God sets the scene. Secondly, we see that Peter lives the gospel. And then, thirdly and finally, we see that Peter speaks the gospel. Now, Chris's uh, little introduction to the passage was really helpful, and it's really important to acknowledge that this is a very significant chapter in the book of Acts, in the story of the early church. In the previous chapters, the gospel had predominantly been shared amongst the Jews. But in this chapter, it begins to go much further. It begins to go out to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles just mean non-Jews. Now for us today, it's almost impossible for us to appreciate just how radical this was. Jews had lots of customs and laws which were all about keeping them separate from the Gentiles which meant that the early Christians probably had no idea how to start reaching out to the, to the Gentiles. So God knowing that, point one, God is the one who sets the scene. Now, although this passage centres around two characters, the disciple Peter and the Roman centurion, the one, the one thing which is really key to spot is that their coming together is very much orchestrated by God. In verse 1, we're introduced to Cornelius, who's described as devout and God-fearing. In verse 3, we see he has a vision of an angel who tells him, send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. As a Roman centurion who's used to following orders, without hesitation, he does as he's commanded. The next day, we see that Peter has a vision as well. Now, on face value, Peter's vision is all about Jewish food laws. But through repetition, it seems for Peter three times is a key number when he needs to hear something important from God. But through repetition and through the events that would follow, Peter realises it is about welcoming the Gentiles into God's family. In the section that follows, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, retells Cornelius's vision another two times, and then it gets repeated again in the next chapter. He wants to make it crystal clear that this meeting is not by chance. God has deliberately brought these men together. This is our first lesson about evangelism. Now, God loves to involve us in his great mission of reaching the lost, of rescuing his people. But the thing is, he'd never leave something that important down to us. He sets up the meetings. And most of the time, these meetings are not the ones that we are looking out for or expecting. They can often look like interruptions. Look at how Peter is interrupted following his vision. He's on the roof at Simon the Tanner's house. And verse 17 says, while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. So Peter's had this vision. He doesn't really understand it. He's grappling to understand it. And then he's interrupted by a little kerfuffle at the gate. What does he do in response to this? Does he think to himself, oh, flipping Gentiles. 
would you lot clear off? I'm trying to understand a very important vision from God here, and you lot can't come in here anyway. You're Gentiles. You're unclean. Now, he obviously didn't say that, and I think that's probably because he'd spent a lot of time with Jesus. And he'd seen numerous times that no matter how much Jesus had going on, he always made time for people. I remember once walking my dog whilst listening to an audio book on my headphones. It was an audio book about evangelism. Now, someone came up and tried to talk to me. Someone who I know is not a Christian. And I kid you not, the first thing I thought was, I'm trying to listen to a book here on how to tell people about Jesus. I haven't got time to talk to you. It's ridiculous. But it does raise a question. Are we so busy that we're not ready to spot the God-ordained interruptions in our day. God was orchestrating the events in this passage and he's still orchestrating events today. If you bump into someone later on this afternoon, it's not by chance. Every meeting is set up by God. So pray. The passage tells us that Cornelius prayed often and Peter was praying just before the men showed up. You see, prayer not only changes situations around us, it also changes us. The more we pray, the more we begin to want the same things that God wants, to think like he thinks. Pray that you would make the most of every opportunity that God sends your way, even when it looks like an interruption. My second point is that Peter lived the gospel. Now, the passage reminds us that evangelism is not a one-off event. It must be rooted in a life that has been transformed by the gospel. It's clear from Peter's response to the vision that he has that God was pushing him beyond his comfort zones. He tries arguing with God and saying, I'll, I'll never do that. But actually, his actions reflect the fact that God was already at work in him, that he was already softening his heart towards the marginalised. Peter was staying at Simon the Tanner's house. Now tanning is the practice of taking animal hides and turning them into leather. It wasn't forbidden in Jewish law because leather was seen as such an important commodity. However, because of the constant contact with dead animals and because of the horrible smell, those who practised tanning were often on the outside of society. They were seen as outcasts. Peter's choice to stay with Simon the Tanner would have stood out to these Gentiles. And then imagine their surprise in verse 23, when instead of telling them to go away, Peter invites them to come into the house. Again, they'd have known that this is not something that a Jew would normally do. Peter's actions were reflecting a love for the marginalised and a heart for the outsider. His his lifestyle was acting as a kind of pre-evangelism. When the men, the men later heard Peter explain the gospel, they'd already seen the gospel acted out in the way that Peter lived. Is the same true of us today? Are we living in the light of who Jesus is and what he has done? Are we prepared to push and even break social boundaries for the sake of the gospel? Because the truth is that if the gospel is not reflected in the way that we live our lives, people are not going to want to listen to us. 
Peter would later write, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. If no one's asking you where your hope is, maybe that's because to the rest of the world, it looks like you're hoping in all the same things that they are. You're hoping in money. You're hoping in job security. You're hoping in a summer holiday. Hope in Jesus will look different to those things. And people will want to ask you about that hope. Evangelism must be linked to a life that has been transformed by the gospel. Only then was Peter ready, point three, to preach the gospel. Now, we use the word gospel a lot. It means good news. But what exactly is the good news? Well, in the first sermon that's ever preached to the Gentiles, Peter gives us the vital ingredients. The order can be changed, the words can be made your own, but Peter shows us what the key parts of the gospel are. The first thing to see in what he says is that it is all about Jesus. The other day I counted, and in ver between verse 36 and 43, Peter refers to Jesus 15 times. I think it's helpful to break those references down into four headings, which I've done. The first one is about Jesus's life. Verse 38 tells us Jesus was anointed by God, chosen by him for a special purpose. This anointing was evident in the way that Jesus lived. Peter tells us that Jesus was good. He was the only person who ever lived a life of full obedience to God. And his acts of power and healing were evidence not only that God was with him, but that he was or is God. God had come as a man and lived a perfect life. But perhaps what is really shocking is that this perfect man hadn't just come to live as an example, he'd come for a very specific reason. And that takes us to our second point about the gospel. It's about Jesus' death. Verse 39 says, they killed him by hanging him on a cross. Peter's audience would have known how awful crucifixions were. They'd have probably agreed with the Jews that to be crucified was a visible sign that you had been cursed by God. Not only was it excruciatingly painful, it was humiliating. If Jesus was really God, why would this be allowed to happen? How could the perfect God-man be cursed? The only thing that makes sense of the cross was if Jesus was not bearing his own curse, but bearing somebody else's curse. If you're a Christian, do you really know that Christ was cursed on a cross so that you could live? He bore the punishment that we deserve. It should have been us on that cross receiving God's judgment and yet Jesus stood in our place. There have been several moments in my life where things have happened that have caused me to look at God and ask God, if you're really in control, how can you be good? Why would you let something so bad happen? 
Each and every time I felt like that, I felt God draw my eyes to Jesus and specifically to the cross. Friends, there is no higher price that God could have paid to redeem his people. Jesus endured something truly awful because he loves his people. We're the ones deserving death and yet he chose to stand in our place. On the cross we see the depths of God's love for his people. If you're going through something at the moment that's causing you to question whether God loves you, then will you lift your eyes to the cross where you will see the perfect display, not just of God's justice, but also his love. If you're a Christian, his love for you. Thirdly, the gospel doesn't end with Jesus's death. It's about Jesus's resurrection. Verse 40 says, but God raised him from the dead. Now, if Jesus had stayed dead, there would be no good news. This church would not be here. The resurrection is not only the greatest evidence that Jesus is God, but also it gives his followers assurance that if Jesus was resurrected, then those who trust in him will also be raised. Friends, when life feels hopeless, look to the resurrection. Remember that today it may well feel like Friday, but Sunday is coming. You may well be in a world of pain now, but Sunday is coming. And because Jesus was risen, we will be risen. We'll be risen to a place where there will be no more suffering or pain or sadness ever again. A place where we will be with God forever and ever and no perfect joy and peace forever. Peter makes it clear in his sermon that the resurrection is not just some rumour or myth, it's verifiable. There were witnesses who ate and drank with Jesus after, after he'd risen. Peter is essentially saying, don't just take my word for it, go and check it out for yourselves, ask around. If Christianity is new to you, I'd really encourage you to do the same. The evidence for the resurrection is far weightier than you may have thought. Go and have a look. Fourthly, the gospel is about the fact that Jesus is a rightful, has a rightful place as judge and saviour. Verse 42 says, Jesus is the one who God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. Here's the part that, if we're honest, we like to leave out of our presentations. The good news of the gospel is only good news when we first realise the bad news. Jesus is going to return as judge of the whole earth, and he is the rightful judge, the only one who can judge, because he is the only one who has ever been perfectly obedient. Everyone who has ever lived throughout the whole of history is going to have to give account for how they have lived their lives. And the Bible tells us this is not going to go well. Paul says in Romans, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. All that we deserve from God is his judgment, his condemnation. But Jesus is not only a judge, he is also a saviour. 
verse 43, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. If we trust in Jesus and trust in his death and resurrection, we do not need to fear him as judge. He will forgive us and welcome us into his family as children of God. What's really important to spot in this passage is that the gospel is not only the message of evangelism, but it's the motivation for evangelism. It tells the Christian that you are more sinful than you ever realised, but that you are more loved than you could ever imagine. And that love is not based upon you being good enough. You failed miserably at that, I'm sorry to tell you. It's not based on how good you are at telling other people about Jesus. It's based entirely on who Jesus is and what he has done. That means that when we tell people about Jesus, we're not doing it to earn anything or try and make ourselves feel good. We're doing it because it's good news and we want to share it. It's like one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. It's about sharing hope and life and joy. (coughs) Let me finish by asking you, do you believe the gospel? Is your hope in the gospel? Is your hope in Jesus? Then will you share the gospel? Will you join in God's mission of rescuing his people? Will you let the lion out of the cage.